the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Continue our exposition through this wonderful gospel that reveals the suffering servant. I'm going to begin by reading Mark, chapter 1, verses 29 to 31. Chapter 1, 29 to 31. The word of the Lord reads, And immediately, after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew, with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick, was lying sick with a fever. And immediately, they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. The title of the message today is The Fast-Paced Ministry of Jesus. One of the many reasons why the Christian worldview is the best is because it answers all of life's basic questions. All of life's frequently asked questions, the common questions we all have, to one degree or another, struggled with. Questions like, what happens after we die? Where did we come from? Why are we here? How am I supposed to live? More specifically, how do I relate to my neighbor, who either loves me or hates me, How am I supposed to treat my parents, my spouse, my children? How do we worship God? You've all asked those questions before, right? One question that I always go back to almost daily, especially since I make the mistake of watching the news, is why is there so much violence and hate and malice and murder and rape and greed, to name a few? As one who is still feeling the long-term effects of cancer and its treatment, I do find myself asking every day, over and over and over again, why is there physical disease? Why is there mental illness? Why is there chronic pain? And ultimately, why is there death? Well, the scripture answers all of those questions sufficiently. All we have to do is open up the Bible and study it and find the truth. When God spoke the world into existence, he created a perfect world without blemish or defect. But man came along and ruined it by sinning. Which brought the confusion, the immorality and destruction. So sickness and suffering And the reality of death are severe, painful reminders of the inescapable fact that we all reside on a fallen planet. Even the advances of modern science cannot remove the plagues our world suffers, can it? Therefore, it would be an utterly worthless endeavor to put your hope in man. Amen? So where do we put our hope? We put our hope in the God-man, don't we? 
Because men cannot cure death. Men cannot rid the world of suffering, but Christ can. And one day, the Bible tells us, he will for good. But keep in mind, only he has that ability. Only he has the ability to rid the world of death, disease, and suffering. And that's what we get a glimpse of in Mark 1, 29-31. In this passage, Mark picks up the narrative immediately following after the meeting between Jesus and the demon in verses 21 to 28, where he demonstrated his power and authority over the spiritual effects of the curse. But in 29 to 31, Jesus clearly demonstrates his power and authority over the physical effects of sin, too. And he did not wait for any time at all to elapse before he continued to show the world who he was. Keep in mind that even though it may take us a year or two to go through this gospel verse by verse, keep in mind that it's meant to be read in one sitting. Every book, every letter of scripture was written for you to read at once. Keep that in mind, right? When you write an email or you write a lengthy letter, you don't intend your recipient to read one sentence and put it away for a week. And then come back and read the next sentence and then put it away for a week. No, when you send an email or a letter, you intend your recipient to read the whole thing and, you know, get the basic gist of what you're trying to say. Well, it's the same in the Bible. What Mark has exposed here in these verses, in this inspired text, are three immediate actions that clearly demonstrate Jesus' fast-paced, powerful ministry. Mark's consistent and repetitive use of the word immediately, which is a common theme in the entire book, reveals to us how driven and focused Jesus was. And listen, If we're to follow in the footsteps of our master, we too must discipline ourselves to be driven and focused on our ambition to labor for God's glory, just like Jesus did. So what's this first immediate action that we see in our passage today that demonstrates Jesus' fast-paced ministry? It's his immediate entrance. Verse 29, the immediate entrance. Mark says, and immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. That word immediately, zero in on that word, focus in on that, underline it. This is Mark's favorite adverb. It could also be translated as straight away or instantly. He uses it often in his writing. And it's intended to convey the fast-paced, ceaseless activity of Christ in his life and ministry. As soon as Jesus began his mission, which was to seek and to save that which was lost, right? He went from place to place, one place to the next. And that's abundantly clear here. They are still in Capernaum after the incident involving the demon-possessed man. And after that, they went directly from the synagogue 
into Simon's house. And as a footnote, uh, for those who may not have a bird's eye view of Scripture, keep in mind that Simon is also Peter. It's the same person. John 1.42 says, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is also translated Peter. So I'm sorry, but you have to memorize three names for one guy. That's just the way the Bible is written. So Mark does not tell us why Jesus and the men went to Peter's house. Neither does the parallel passages in Synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Luke. A typical synagogue service ended around noon, kind of like ours does. Therefore, perhaps they went to rest on the Sabbath day or to share a meal together. But evidently, that detail doesn't matter, so don't get hung up on that. Because what we'll see later is that Jesus had a divine appointment with a dying woman. And before we get to that, I want to make a few comments about Peter's house. And I won't go deep into it because I don't want to bore you with the history, but it's, it's important and it gets a little bit more precision to our text. Peter's house was not a small shack. It wasn't a little one-room house. Because there was a small crowd living there. The house was large enough to house Peter, his wife, and children. According to church tradition, he had at least one child. Also living there under the roof was his mother-in-law, as we see in the text, his brother Andrew and Andrew's family. So this house had to be big enough to sleep all of those people, which again suggests that Peter was wealthy enough to be able to afford such an estate. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, these men did not leave behind a failing business adventure. They were not dumb simpletons. They were not common laborers. They were successful tradesmen who apparently had a fairly large operation headquartered in Capernaum. Not only was this house built in such a way that could host such a large family, including guests, but there is plenty of archaeological data out there which, which, which clearly indicate that there are engravings um, from Peter's house that depicted early gatherings for Christians. So most likely, Peter's house was also used for believers to assemble for worship. This is the place where Jesus would perform his first miracle immediately following his public debut in the synagogue. That's his immediate, immediate entrance. Now let's consider the immediate encounter, the second immediate action in our passage that demonstrates Jesus' fast-paced ministry. You'll notice that as soon as he enters the house... Jesus was immediately confronted with a situation of dire emergency. Look at verse 30. It says, Now Simon's mother-in-law was laying sick with a fever. Now this is why I love expository preaching. Because the original language flushes out some more precise meaning here. The English word that you see in your Bible, fever, is from the Greek word that we get pyro from. So literally, she was sick with fire. That is to say that this poor woman was not suffering from a little common cold. She was burning up, so much so that she was bedridden. 
And that indicates that this fever was life-threatening. It was much more than a 101-degree temperature that perhaps a little rest and maybe some over-the-counter drug could cure. No. This woman was in desperate need of a miracle. This type of physical affliction was very prevalent in the first century because medical science as we know it did not simply exist. When someone became ill, like this poor lady, she did not have accessible to her the medical advances we take for granted. There was no Walgreens. There was no Safeway that you could hop in your car and run to if you need something as cheap as a sterile bandage. There was no ER. There was no urgent care clinic with an army of highly skilled and qualified physicians on standby, ready to treat any wound or serious affliction. If someone were to contract a disease or injury in this time, they would remain sick and suffer through it until the illness somehow passed. Or the illness would take their life. Most disease caused by suffering, I mean, most disease that caused that much suffering, there was no remedy. In fact, it wasn't unheard of for plagues to wipe out an entire village or region. There was no way to stop it. And so consequently, when anyone contracted a potentially life-threatening sickness, they were forced to endure it without the soothing, pain-killing effects of anesthetics or the healing, curing ability of medicine. So this is why your exegesis is important here. Now you've got to transport yourself back into the time of Jesus and think for a second. What if I were in Simon Peter's shoes? How would you respond? How would you think? Simon Peter's mother-in-law was stricken with a serious fever. She is profusely sweating with flushed cheeks, soreness and dryness of throat, Aching body, loss of energy, physical fatigue, and burning, flaming, hot skin. So it's reasonable to assume that they had likely exhausted all natural methods of physical healing. The ones that were accessible to them. And they failed. Peter's mother-in-law was going to die. Therefore, all they could do was humbly call upon the great physician to heal her. And according to Mark, that's exactly what they immediately did. Immediately, Jesus does just that. Notice that Jesus did not need anything to do it. He did not utter some weird mystical incantation. He didn't call for some ointment or oil or herbal supplement. Picking up in the narrative, verse 30 again, all it took was his word. It says, immediately, they spoke to Jesus about her. As soon as they saw her, when they walked in the house, they immediately brought it up to Jesus. They didn't wait. They didn't let Jesus rest. They didn't have some small talk 
immediately they brought the problem before the Lord. And the parallel passage in Mark 4 says they asked him to help her. And they were doing the right thing. Because the situation was well beyond human help. Only God himself could heal her. So they speak to Jesus about this physical need. Now, this is really a picture of intercessory prayer. It is speaking to Jesus about another person and eliciting his help for someone else. Now, let that be encouraging because there is no greater power you possess if you're a child of God in this fallen world in prayer. What we see in this passage is Jesus hearing and answering the request of someone asking on behalf of another. And what does Jesus do? They say, don't bother me, woman. I'm tired. I, I, just, I just went toe-to-toe with this demon. Give me a break, will you? Verse 31 says, he came to her and he raised her up. Taking her by the hand. Now listen. I know that I'm a hard preacher. I know that I'm naturally drawn to the hard stuff. Those are the things that grip my thinking. So here's a little balance for you, okay? Soak it in. Here's where we see the soft, Tender, gentle, compassionate side of Christ. At times with the Pharisees, as you know, he was harsh and blunt, sometimes damning. But other times, the Lord is like a gentle, soothing, calm, delicate father, bending down, picking up, and cradling his small child in his arms. And that's the Jesus we see in verse 31. We read in Matthew's account that Jesus touched her hand. And in Luke's account, we read that he was standing over her. So, now try to imagine you being this sick woman. You're lying in bed in extreme discomfort, not knowing if you're going to live or die. When suddenly... The Lord of Lords comes into your bedroom. You see him approach you to your bedside and extend a sympathetic hand. Now what's happening is that the God of the universe, the creator, the king of kings, the Messiah has graciously come to give you renewed physical life. We don't know if Jesus came to her with a smile or a sober-minded expression. We don't know if he looked serious or lighthearted. The text does not tell us. And it doesn't matter, so you know, try not to read too much in here. A lot of movies and, and books take a little bit too much freedom with the personality of Jesus. But simply by the fact that he stood over her, took her by the hand, and brought her up. That is the compassionate Jesus 
that Scripture reveals. Mark says the fever left her. And we know exactly how the fever left her because Mark 4, 39 says that he rebuked the fever. So, so here we see in one simple verse the compassionate side of Jesus and the authoritative, judgmental side of Jesus. He judged and he commanded this fever to leave and it obeyed. So this burning hot fever in a moment vanishes at the divine directive of Christ. One second the woman is on the brink of death. The next she is back to her normal, healthy self. Having been the recipient of a supernatural miracle performed by the Lord. It is such an immediate healing that there is no recovery time needed. There is no lingering weakness. There is no progressive regaining of strength. She is completely, immediately, miraculously healed by the Lord. Now, the question that we're confronted with after reading this is this. Why did Jesus heal her? Why? Well, he did not do it for show. He did not do it simply to gain the confidence of Peter and his mother-in-law or Anyone else in that matter, he didn't have nothing to prove to them, did he? I mean, he had just performed an exorcism minutes or hours earlier. He certainly did not do it to leave an example for any man or woman to mimic. Because we can't, right? We can't heal people. We'll get to that more later. So why did Jesus do this? Well, First, as I've already alluded to, he did it to demonstrate his compassion. He is tender towards his people. Jesus has mercy towards those whom suffer. Even in the fast-paced, very brief, three-year ministry of Jesus, listen, he was not indifferent. He was not insensitive to the sick, to the crippled, to the dying who were often shunned by the pagans in Jesus' time. I think of um, the story of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16, where Jesus talks about this rich man who thinks he's a believer, totally ignore a man so destitute that the dogs are coming to lick his sores. Jesus told that pearl because that was nothing unheard of. That was, that was the norm. Rome was not a democratic or socialist society. They, they, they viewed those poor, helpless, sick people as those who are a waste of space. That's the atheistic worldview. The atheistic worldview cares little to nothing for the debilitated and disabled. Right? Their mantra is only the strong survive and the survival of the fittest. But you must hate that worldview. You must hate it with a passion. Because the biblical worldview, the Christ-centered worldview, follows the pattern of of compassion for those who need help. 
That's why Christians adopt children with special needs. That's why doctors who spend thousands upon thousands of dollars to get their credentials go to the mission field. And they give care to those who can't give them a penny. Only Christians do that. That's why we give money and our time to organizations that seek to end abortion and feed the poor. That ethic comes from the Bible. It comes from Christ himself. We do those things. We do those things because we want to be like Jesus, right? Jesus did this to demonstrate his compassion. The second reason why Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law is really the chief reason. He did it to demonstrate his deity. He did it to demonstrate his deity. By miraculously curing the woman, he proved he was no mere man. This testified to Peter. And now to us, that Jesus is exactly who Mark is presenting him to be, the Son of God. And these miracles provide more than enough evidence, indisputable evidence that he is divine. Because only God can command the demons to leave And only God can have the power and authority to command diseases. Men in their futile, charismatic attempts cannot do what Jesus did in Mark 131. That leads us to something else I want to address this morning. Another issue of contemporary theology. It's an issue that's sadly and excessively prevalent and accepted in mainstream evangelicalism. It's the issue of so-called faith healing. It's the issue of so-called faith healers, okay? So, this is where I exercise my role to refute those who contradict, okay? This is where I exercise my role to rebuke those who are in error, okay? So, I do this because I love you. I do this because I want to function as a shepherd protecting his sheep, so please listen. Faith healers are an ultra-charismatic leader often associated with the televangelist group you see on TBN. And they claim to possess the same ability that Jesus had to miraculously heal the sick. But one thing that's majorly different is that their service comes with a hefty price tag. And their insurance policy, when they fail, is wholly based upon whether or not the sick person has an unspecified amount of faith. In other words, if the sick person doesn't get healed after the healer performs the supposed healing, then the fault lies squarely on the shoulders of the sick person for not having enough faith. Isn't that absolutely tragic? This widely broadcasted display of charlatanism is nothing new. The world has always been duped by false teachers who prey on the physical suffering of desperate people in order to extort money from them. And again, so to be crystal clear, I'm saying what I'm saying not to denigrate anyone. 
or at this moment to sound hard for the sake of sounding hard. I say this out of deep love for the church and specifically for you who may have been influenced by this form of charismatic teaching. And when you do encounter it, if you haven't yet, you will be able to discern true healing from the false gift. So it's vital for you to be aware of this popular sect of charismania. And know that all so-called faith healers, in spite of their outlandish and bold claims, are nothing more than, listen, con artists, hucksters, peddlers, imposters, and swindlers. And to use a biblical term, they're instruments of Satan touting and slaving doctors of demons. They may have the ability to manipulate large crowds of disheartened, undiscerning, and gullible people who are suffering immensely, but they do not possess the power to genuinely heal anyone. The ridiculous antics of men like Benny Hinn, who claims to have the capacity to literally dispense the anointing of the Spirit with the waving of the hand, are really counterfeit prophets. It's so easy to see. Because what you see taking place in the so-called faith healer's ministry is nothing at all like what you see in the Bible. So let's consider what faith healers do, and let's look at what Jesus did, and then compare and contrast the two. Does that sound fun? Let's do it. First, here's what the faith healers typically do. Later, you can go on YouTube and find it, okay? But don't do it now. Here's what they typically do. In order to control the illusion of healing, they carefully pre-screen people they uh, want to allow on stage. And then in a highly controlled environment, they handpick victims of spiritual abuse, which is really what they are. After they're handpicked and they're briefed, they are so emotionally stir-crazed and hysterical because of the crowd, because of the music, because of the TV cameras, because of the celebrity-like persona of these so-called faith healers, that by the time they make it onto the stage, they already believe something has happened to them. Call it priming the pump, so to speak. Then when the sick person is escorted to center stage to meet the man with the supposed gift, the faith healer raises his hand. He waves at him. And he says, be anointed. Then the guy on stage falls back like he was somehow overcome with the Spirit's presence. And the faith healer loudly exclaims, praise Jesus. The pain is gone. 
And then guess what happens next? Nothing. Nothing at all. They dragged the dazed and confused victim of spiritual abuse off the platform, and here comes the next one. And, and they just do that over and over again. That's what they show on TV. That's what they write about. That's what they advertise. But I promise you, it's a sham. I know men who have gone to those things before, and it's a sham. Don't even be intrigued by it. Now, let's see how Jesus healed people and then examine the evidence. What's the evidence that Jesus' healing was true and genuine? Well, we can start by going back to our text today at the end of verse 31 and see the third immediate action that demonstrates Jesus' fast-paced ministry. It's the immediate employment. Draw your attention to the end of verse 31. It says, And... She waited on them. That was her response. Her response to being healed was to serve. You say, so what? Well, that indicates her symptoms were gone. She had no recovery period, and that was blatantly obvious. One minute, she had been too weak to do anything but lie down. The next, she was on her feet, full of energy, and ready to prepare the Sabbath dinner. That fact, that she got out of bed and immediately, Mark 4.39 adds, immediately started to serve. That gives evidence that she was fully healed, and it was plain to see. If she had been inactive, then it would have proved that Jesus was a sham. But notice she did not remain confined to that bed, did she? She got up and went to work immediately. So in stark contrast to these counterfeit healings, Jesus healed instantly and completely. Those who experience his healing power need no time to recover or recuperate. One commentator says this, Peter's mother-in-law is a prime example of the immediacy of Jesus' healings. She did not need to wait to feel better. The Lord did not instruct her to take it easy for a few weeks in order for her body to recover. She went from languishing in bed to functioning in full strength. Now, now that's really only the first line of evidence that Jesus was was a genuine healer. He healed Instantly and completely. Secondly, he healed indiscriminately. Meaning that he healed everyone who came to him with undeniable organic diseases and physical disabilities. On one occasion, as you remember, Jesus even reattached a missing ear that was sliced off. Such that it was perfectly restored to its normal condition, Luke 22. But not only did Jesus heal everyone according to their affliction, listen to this. He did not require an inordinate amount of faith to participate. In fact, most of the people that Jesus healed were unbelievers. 
Thirdly, not only did he heal completely, instantly, and indiscriminately, Jesus conducted his healing ministry in full public view. Full public view. Not behind a camera. Not behind a select group of inner circle people. As you see in Mark 1, during the normal course of his ministry, as he moved from place to place, he did not require highly controlled environments in order to manipulate crowds and the circumstances. Rather, he was able to heal anyone at any time, at any place, with any ailments. He did not go to Peter's mother-in-law and hatch a scheme, a show, or a facade. What happened here was that Jesus met a perfect stranger. He healed her instantly. He healed her completely. He healed her indiscriminately, in public, without a prearranged meeting. That's how Jesus conducted his healings. Now, does that match with any supposed so-called gift of healing that charismatics tout today? No. And it's so easy to discern that. All you have to do is read the scripture and make these observations, okay? If it does not match with what Jesus and the apostles did, then it's a counterfeit gift. And that's important. And again, I don't say these things to denigrate people. I say things so that you will have discernment and not rely on the false gifting of false teachers. Rely on Christ. Rely on Christ. If God should give any of us a disease that's incurable, you have no need. You have no need to pursue lies. You have no need to even put your hope in medicine. Because the great physician has given us something far more eternal than physical healing. And that's the gift of eternal life. And so if we understand that, if we understand the meaning and the wittiness of that truth, we will no longer be susceptible to this kind of teaching and we will no longer be susceptible to worshiping this present day life. So, brothers and sisters, be on guard. Be watchful. Be vigilant and stand firm against false teachings that claim to be the agency of Christ's healing. No one possesses that today. No one. I must say also, you want to know the saddest part about those who fall prey? the false faith healers. You know, one of the saddest things, those poor victims of spiritual abuse, the scripture says that they are the ones ultimately responsible for their blind reception of such teaching. Because we are all able, we all have available to us the written word of God. And Peter says in 2 Peter 1.19, we have more sure 
the prophetic word. That means the scripture is more complete, more permanent, and more authoritative than any experience or claims of anyone. That's why it's so important for you to know theology. Because the more you know about God, the less susceptible you are to false teachers, charlatans, and faith healers. Now, what's the biggest lesson that we can learn from these three little verses? It's simple. Do not waste time. Don't procrastinate. Don't hold back in serving Christ like the precious woman did in Mark 131. It is Christ's likeness to be doing the work of God. Just like Christ did not waste any time doing little and trivial things with no eternal value, neither did this lady who was almost dead one minute and the next minute she was serving the Lord she was serving Dr. Steve Lawson says tomorrow is the devil's day today is God's day and that means if you sit idle today doing nothing for the kingdom the devil profits but if you're a slave of the Lord Jesus You know that you need to labor day in and day out to put the glory of God on display. If you do that, then it's God's day. So what are you doing? How are you serving the Lord? How do you go about your father's business? How do you serve Christ and his people like this woman did immediately after she was healed? The ministry of Jesus was fast-paced. So was the apostles. So were the early Christians. So were the reformers. So should ours. Do not let worldliness, do not let bitterness, do not let laziness keep you from being a lifelong servant of Christ. Now, I'm not talking about being busy. I'm not a programmed guy. I don't want to be busy for the sake of being busy like a lot of churches are. I'm talking about the willing, joyful, earnest, selfless, thankful, sacrificial service to God. Because let me remind you what Paul said in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what do we learn, again, to conclude from this fast-paced ministry of Jesus? Let's get to work. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for revealing this portion of Jesus' life. 
revealing that he had compassion for the suffering. Oh, Father, give us compassion for the suffering. Forgive us for any lack of compassion that we've had. Thank you for revealing your power, your divine authority over physical illness. And though we know that you did not come to save us from physical sickness primarily, we, we see that our life does involve caring and loving those who are sick and disabled. May we be a reflection of you in this way. May we also take from this text the necessity to serve as Christ went from place to place to place serving as this woman who almost died of a red-hot, fiery fever. She got up and she started to serve. Wow. Father, forgive us for any laziness. Forgive us for any indifference that we've had to the ministry, to the heavenly task of making disciples, serving one another. Father, please give us a renewed zeal to serve you by serving one another. I pray for our church to grow, to grow up spiritually, to to be a beacon of light for this valley who are in darkness. Thank you for this time together, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.